Pastor Tim will be leading us in worship. Good afternoon. Such a joy to be with you again today to worship our wonderful God and Father. As we begin our worship, please rise if you're able to for the call to worship. Our call to worship for this service is taken from Psalm 107, verses 4 to 8. Some wandered in desert wastelands, finding no way to a city where they could settle. They were hungry and thirsty, and their lives ebbed away. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He led them by a straight way to a city where they could settle. Let us give thanks to the Lord for his unfailing love and his wonderful deeds for mankind, for he satisfies the thirsty and fills the hungry with good things. As we come to worship such a great and gracious God, we come with the utmost humility, and so we confessing, we come confessing our dependence. Congregation, where does our help come from? Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's sing together Psalm 89, stanzas 3 and 4.
This afternoon, we've gathered to worship an awesome, powerful God. As we just sang together, His power is unbounded. And also, as we sang together, uh, He alone is powerful enough to calm the raging sea. And we'll see that so beautifully in our text for today. And so as we gather to worship such an awesome God, we can only come, again, with humility. And so it's fitting that we read the Ten Commandments at the beginning of our worship. Uh, This is meant to remind us of our sin and our weakness and our unworthiness, our powerlessness in front of such an awesome God. And it's supposed to remind us, of course, of our desperate need for forgiveness, our desperate need for a Savior who will bring us back to God and will teach us how to live with Him and for Him once again. We'll keep that in mind as we read together the Ten Commandments as found in Exodus chapter 20. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or in the earth beneath, or in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them, or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heaven and the earth, the sea and all that's in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. As we reflect on God's law again, we're reminded that we break all of these laws continually. Uh, But we know by God's grace, he forgives us in Christ, washes away all of our guilt, and he teaches us that we, so that we can begin to keep by the power of his spirit, by his grace, every single one of these commandments. Let's sing about our merciful God who teaches us to live in his ways in Psalm 143, stanzas 4 and 5.
Before we open God's word together, let's go to the Lord in prayer, and we'll ask him for a blessing on the opening of his word and on our worship. O Lord, our Lord, you are such a faithful God. As we sang together, you also are so righteous. We're so faithless and so needy. Lord, that's how we come to you this afternoon once again. As we come to you in prayer, we extend our hands to you, hungry and thirsty for your goodness and for your grace and for your forgiveness and for your love. Lord, we thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ, through whom you gave us all these things and more. As your forgiven and loved children, uh, we come to you and we offer you all of our heart, as we just sang together. And now we ask that through all our life, the good times and the bad, you might teach us more about you, teach us more about your nature and your ways. And we pray that you will guide our learning. We ask that you will do that now uh, as we open up your word. We pray these things not because we're worthy of them at all, but simply because you are good. It's in Jesus' name alone that we pray. Amen. Our scripture reading for today comes from Mark, Mark chapter 4. Last couple weeks, we started our way through the book of Mark. Today, we're going to Mark again, and then we're going to take a break for a few weeks. I'll be on an exchange, and then I'll be preaching on some Lord's Days, and then we'll keep on going in Mark. Today, today we're going to look at the end of Mark chapter 4, and the next time when we take up Mark again, we'll start with the beginning of chapter 5. So some background for our text today, we'll read Mark 4, verse 26 to 34. And he, that's Jesus, said, The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle, because the harvest has come. And he said, With what can we compare the kingdom of God, or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which when it is sown on the ground, is the smallest of all the seeds on the earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants, and puts out large branches, so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. With many such parables he spoke the word to them, and as, as they were able to hear it, he did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples he explained everything. That brings us to the beginning of our text, which we'll read in a moment about Jesus uh, testing his disciples after all this teaching uh, as he calms the storm before their eyes. Let's sing a psalm now. Psalm 107, uh, stanzas 9, 10, and 11. And we'll see in that psalm who's the only one who's able to calm a storm. Thank you. 
Uh, Let's open up together to our text for this afternoon, which comes from the end of Mark chapter 4, continuing on where our reading just ended. Mark chapter 4, starting at verse 35. On that day, when evening had come, Jesus said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? So far, our reading of God's word. Brothers and sisters, how do you feel about tests? Usually I'm not one who gets stressed particularly easily, uh, but I've had tests that were enough to make me feel physically sick. I know some of you have too. I can especially feel extremely stressed when I'm not sure what's going to be on a test. I don't know how to possibly study for it. So the worst kinds of tests for me are pop quizzes, ones that you just can't prepare for. And I get it, these tests actually make a lot of sense, don't they? Because what could be better for finding out what you actually know than a totally unexpected pop quiz? But the reason for anxiety is clear too. Because what has a better chance of completely embarrassing you and showing you that you don't really know anything than a test that you weren't expecting? In our text today, we see a sort of a pop quiz. And like any good teacher, Jesus doesn't give the pop quiz just to be mean. At least our teachers said they weren't just trying to be mean. But Jesus gives this pop quiz to teach. Specifically to teach the disciples and us that we still have a lot to learn about Jesus and his mission and his message and his character. Specifically, we have a lot to learn when it comes to trusting in the Lord of the storm. We'll see this in two parts. First, we'll see the test. And secondly, we'll see the results. So first of all, the test. You need to realize that the disciples have probably been with Jesus for about a year now. And so over a year with Jesus, they have probably heard and seen so much. They've seen Jesus heal countless people like the leper we heard about last week. They've even seen Jesus forgive people's sins. Who can do that? More than that, they've heard Jesus preaching constantly. We heard that last time as well. What Jesus came to do was primarily to preach. And he spent a lot of time going from place to place, preaching and teaching the good news of the coming of God's kingdom. And you have to imagine that Jesus, as he went around from place to place, he didn't have completely new material every time, right? His message was fundamentally the same in each place. And so the disciples, you have to imagine, they would have known Jesus' material very well by this point. They were with Jesus and they were close to him, and they likely knew the whole lesson very well. Maybe they knew large chunks of his teaching 
uh, word for word. We need to remember it was an oral culture back then. That's how people learned. They listened and then they repeated and then they would memorize things pretty much word for word. And actually we're told right before this in Mark 3 verse 14 that Jesus intends to send the disciples out to begin preaching themselves. He even gave them authority to do signs, to cast out demons in his name. And so it seems like the, the disciples must be starting to get it. They must have learned a lot. They might be uh, on the right road. Those who saw Jesus and the disciples, they might have thought that the disciples really got Jesus. They understood his message, and they like uh, Jesus had great knowledge and great faith. And perhaps the disciples too would have started to buy into the hype a little bit. Maybe they were beginning to think the same thing. That they knew Jesus well, they knew his message. They were really getting a hang of this discipleship thing and they were ready to just go and be teachers. Well, one day, uh, by the sea, Jesus was doing what he usually did. He's teaching a great crowd. And he's standing out in a boat to do it so that the crowds don't swamp him. And so he taught them using parables and then as we read together, he would especially turn to his disciples and explain what the parables meant. And so after a very long day of teaching and preaching, Jesus was absolutely exhausted. And so finally, as we read, evening comes, and he says to his disciples, let's go across to the other side of the lake. Let's go across to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And there seem to be a few reasons for this trip, the three in particular. First of all, Jesus likely wanted to get some rest. If you're familiar with Jesus in the Gospels, that's often what he wanted to do. After long times of teaching or healing, he needed a break. He needed to withdraw. He needed to spend some time in prayer with his father. More than that, now that these crowds had heard Jesus' message, he probably wanted to go and preach elsewhere, and that's exactly what he goes to do. But even more than that, the third reason, Jesus had one more thing, one more lesson he wanted to teach the disciples. After another long day of teaching, it was time for a pop quiz. And this unexpected test was very necessary for the disciples who after spending so long with Jesus, hearing messages, even similar-sounding messages over and over again, probably thought they didn't really need to hear it anymore. They probably thought they knew a lot about Jesus, who, who he was, what he was doing, what he's capable of. They're quite familiar with him. But this test that Jesus springs on them will show that's not true at all. And maybe that's what we need to hear today, too. Because of a lot of us here, we've grown up in the church. Maybe we think we're pretty familiar with Jesus. We know who he is, what he's about. We hear these similar sounding messages all the time. Maybe we've gotten comfortable and complacent. And we're not seeking the scriptures as we should. We're not listening carefully to the preaching and striving to hear more and know more. And to trust more. And to love more. So here Jesus gives the disciples and us a wake-up call. And it's one that really sticks with the disciples. As you could probably guess, the one who wrote this gospel, the gospel of Mark, is... Mark. Yeah, they taught me that at seminary. But, do you know who Mark is? Mark was the close companion, and many think the scribe of the Apostle Peter. And so Mark is the one who's writing these words, but you can actually see throughout the book, uh, often Peter seems to be the source. So the stories throughout the book of Mark are very vivid. The language is really colorful. But even more so, when there are events that Peter himself would have been at. In many places, Peter's own weaknesses and failings are recounted in vivid detail. But on the other hand, where we see praiseworthy acts of Peter in other, in other Gospels, 
They're really downplayed or admitted or omitted in the book of Mark. So while Mark is writing this gospel, it seems that Peter is the one who's telling the story. And so Peter is what is one of those disciples who after 12 long months was getting comfortable with Jesus and with his teaching. He probably fancied that he knew who Jesus was and what he was doing. But here he tells us the story of the time when Jesus tested that, when he rattled them, when he showed them that while they had been handpicked by Jesus and had spent so many hours learning at his feet, nevertheless, they had a lot left to learn. And so Peter recounts this story. And if you noticed while we were reading it, Jesus seems to remember it like, or sorry, Peter rather, seems to remember it like it was yesterday. He describes it as a day much like any other. Jesus was teaching in parables and he just started getting, it just started getting dark. And Jesus said, let's cross the lake. So Peter remembers it was Jesus' idea to lead them into the lake at that time. And of course, we obeyed. Since he had been teaching in the boat already, we took him, Peter says, just as he was. They just left right away. And he remembers there were other boats there too. And as they were on their way, a huge storm came. The wind was howling. The waves were crashing up onto the boat. Before we knew what was happening, the boat was filling with water. And we were terrified. And you know what? All this time, you know where Jesus was. He was in the back of the boat, sleeping on a cushion. We need to remember, a lot of these disciples were fishermen. Jesus called them to follow him just a couple chapters ago, uh, right out of their boats. And they weren't new fishermen either. For some of them, you might recall, this was a family business. You can just imagine as they, they basically grew up on the water. They had been out on the boat with their dad since they were little boys. They knew the Sea of Galilee in particular, like the, the back of their hand. They were fishermen on this lake all their lives. The Sea of Galilee is more like the Lake of Galilee. It is a little bit smaller, or quite a bit smaller actually, than Harrison Lake right nearby. And so they were familiar with fishing this uh, sea and fishing it at night. And they were familiar with the lake, and so they were familiar with the storms. If you know one thing about the Sea of Galilee, it's probably that it is known still today for its ferocious storms. Because of the cliffs and the mountains around the Sea of Galilee, it's basically in a wind tunnel. If you go to tours around the Sea of Galilee today, apparently, uh, you'll still see signs warning you that even with modern technology, they can't really predict when one of these gales is going to come upon the lake. I've heard that certain parking lots have warnings that if you leave your car there, certain storms could crop up and swamp the parking lot or even pull your car out to sea. So the disciples were used to this sea, and they were used to these storms as well. But this storm that Jesus just led them into was very different. You can imagine for a second, picture in your mind, these seasoned fishermen, and a big storm comes up. What would these fishermen likely say? Oh, this is nothing. You should have seen the storms back in my day. But Peter remembers, not with this storm. This storm was different. Every one of them, even the seasoned fishermen, were terrified. All of them, even the seasoned fishermen, were sure they were about to die. 
What a test Jesus just led them into. This is a lesson we need to be reminded of. Because Jesus doesn't promise to keep storms away from us. He promises that he will be with us in the storm. He promises to work through the storms. So the disciples, when the storm falls upon them, realizing they're over their heads, they run over to Jesus and shake him awake. Just think again for a second how strange that is, or how awesome that is, how remarkable it is. Because these guys are the seasoned fishermen, and yet they realize that Jesus is the expert here. He is the one they need to go to. So they run over to him and they yell to him, Teacher, teacher. And of course, Jesus is a teacher. And here he's using this storm to teach them about himself and also to teach them about themselves. And so Jesus gets up and he goes over and he tells the howling wind, the the waves coming up into the boat, he tells them, quiet. Jesus gets over, up, goes over and essentially just says, quiet. Peace. Be still. And the storm becomes quiet. You can picture the roaring, gusting wind. It just stops. Even the huge, crashing waves, which can go on for hours, days after a big enough storm, the waves just retreat back into the sea. And what we're told of the great storm, all that remains is a great calm. I really love how uh, our children's story Bible at home words this. Because this is an incredible thing that we're reading about here. We can imagine Jesus commanding demons to come out of people. That kind of makes sense to us, right? We can even imagine commanding uh, diseases to come out of people. We can kind of wrap our minds around that. But Jesus here talks just to air. And just to water. And they listen. They obey. As the Jesus Storybook Bible says, the wind and the waves recognized Jesus' voice. This is truly the Lord of creation, the one who made the wind and the waves with only his voice. And everyone and everything Jesus teaches his disciples and us answers to him. So here Jesus teaches us a vital lesson because here he shows so clearly he is God. It's clear from the Old Testament, especially Psalm 107 that we just sang together, it's God alone who can hush the waves. God alone who can quiet the wind. And as Jesus shows so clearly to his disciples, even when everything seems to be in chaos, there too, he's in perfect control. There too, he's working. There too, he's teaching. And this was a test. This was a lesson the disciples badly needed. They needed to learn that even when they were obeying Jesus, they would still need to pass through great, terrifying trials, great suffering, great storms. Because for the disciples, not everything was going to be easy. But there too, God would be working. There too, God would be teaching. There too, he was in control. They could trust him. Because the disciples, you have to think about it. The disciples had a lot more storms coming, a lot more fierce storms coming. Not physical storms like this. In Jesus' life, they would fear for their lives again. And then after Jesus left, the disciples would be persecuted. They'd be harassed. They'd be imprisoned. They'd even be martyred. They needed to learn 
Storms were coming. Big storms. Storms God himself would let them go into. Storms God himself would lead them into. But he would be there with them. He would be working through them. They could trust him the whole time. And we need to hear this. And Mark's original readers needed to hear this too. Mark was writing, it's believed, to Christians in Rome in the first century. They were going uh, through some real storms. They were going through storms like we can go through too, of course. Probably things that they were worried about like losing their jobs, losing loved ones, losing their health. But more than that, they were going through the intense and frankly insane barbaric persecution under Emperor Nero. Nero demanded that Christians revile, that's insult or abuse Christ's name. And if they refused, Nero would have them tortured. He'd have them fed to lions. He'd have them used as torches for his house parties. These Christians needed to know, and we need to know too, God is still there in the hard times. God is still in control in the hard times. God is still working and teaching in the hard times. Just study early church history and you'll see that this is true. I'm so blown away by it every time that I do. There's a small group, a relatively small group of faithful believers and they're treated horribly. But as Tertullian famously said, the blood of the martyrs seemed to be the seed of the church. The more they were persecuted, the more they were killed, the more people showed they wouldn't give up on Christ because they knew they believed Christ had never given up on them. So the more they were persecuted, the more Christianity spread, the more the emperors, the great powers of their day, tried to stomp out Christianity, the more it grew. And before long, the church of a few thousand turned into the church of millions all around the Roman Empire, all around the known world. God was there in the storm. He was working and he was teaching even then. And this is just a small picture, a small pop quiz, a reflection of what was to come for the disciples and for many other Christians as well. And so having seen the test, let's take a look at the results. As happens more often with pop quizzes, at least if you're anything like me, the results were not very good. (laughs) The test, though, it did what it was supposed to do. It showed that these comfortable disciples, uh, that they had so much more to learn about Jesus who he was, what he was like, just how powerful he was. And so we can, we can see this in the disciples' response to the test. Jesus asked them after the storm came upon them, why are you so afraid? Now, it's important that we don't misunderstand this because I've misunderstood this before and many other people have too. So listen carefully. Brothers and sisters, with God on our side, it is true We don't have to be afraid. But that does not mean that we can't be afraid. Of course we can be afraid. We can go to God when we're afraid in the great storms that come upon us. He won't rebuke us. We truly have a high priest who is able to sympathize with us. And John Calvin explains this wonderfully. Remember, John Calvin, too, was writing in a time of intense persecution of true believers. As John Calvin explains, the disciples aren't called out by Jesus just because 
They were afraid. Of course, the disciples were afraid. The storm was sudden, and it was horrific. They were sure they were about to die. Likewise, for the early Christians and the martyrs that Mark was writing to, it's natural to be afraid in a storm like that, isn't it? And though our fear is tainted with sin and unbelief, not all fear itself is sinful. Fear can be good. It can lead us to recognize our weakness and make us run to Christ. When Jesus calls out here is the type of fear the disciples showed. The word here means excessive fear. The word here means dread. It means cowardice. And look look closely, look closely at what Jesus said to them. He asked them in verse 40, Why are you so afraid? It wasn't just that the disciples were scared. Of course, the disciples were scared. It was that they were too scared. A type of fear not fitting for a Christian, not fitting for someone who believes in God, who trusts that God loves them and is in control of all things. Someone who believes that God has got them. He's got them in life and in death. Someone who, in this case, should have realized that the Messiah himself, God's Son, God in the flesh, was with them in that very boat. Why are you so afraid, is Jesus' question. A fear that great, as Jesus shows, can only be a symptom of unbelief. Their response to the test shows a deep lack of faith in him. As Jesus asks, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? We can see this, this extreme fear, this even unbelieving fear, and what the disciples say to Jesus as they're frantically waking him up. Picture Peter recounting the story again of the time that Jesus tested them and they failed to trust in him as they should have. A time when they were much too scared. Peter remembers exactly what they asked Jesus, exactly what he asked Jesus. He asked Jesus one of the most biting questions in all of the New Testament, in all of Scripture. Afraid for their life, the disciples ran over to Jesus, shook him awake, and said, verse 38, Teacher, do you not care? Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Brothers and sisters, that was the problem. That was a failing grade on the pop quiz. When a storm comes, be afraid. Of course, we'll be afraid. We can be upset. We're weak people. The Lord remembers we're only dust. We can cry our heart out. You can see that throughout the Psalms. But then take your fear to Christ. And don't you doubt, he cares. I wonder if you've ever asked a question like this. I remember once in my life I did. I remember very clearly I was calling out to God in prayer. And I asked him, God, don't you care? And as soon as I did, I felt the answer burning in my heart. Of course, Tim. Come on. You know he cares. You know. Of course he cares. The reason Jesus is in this boat is because he cares. The reason Jesus went through the storms, the reason he deals with these disciples time and time again, the reason he deals with us 
time and time again is because he cares. He cares so much about them, so much about you, so much about me. When the storm got too tough for the disciples, so to speak, when the storm got too tough for you and me, Jesus was the only one who would press on anyways. He went on without us where we could never go. He went to the point of death on a cross. As we heard last week from Ken, from Pastor Winston through Ken, Jesus went to the point of hellish agony for you. He went to the point of hellish agony for me. So in your storm and in your suffering, in your terror and anguish, does Jesus care? Of course he does. You can be upset, you can be sad, be afraid, but don't doubt that he cares. In the Chronicles of Narnia, there's a scene that depicts this so beautifully. Uh, In the very first book, the main character, Diggory, uh, all along throughout the story, he's worried about his mother, who's deathly ill. At one point, he's in front of Aslan, the lion meant to represent Christ in the books. At first, Diggory is too scared to say anything about his mother. But then, Lewis writes, A lump came in his throat, and tears in his eyes, and he blurted out, Please, please, won't you, can't you give me something that will cure my mother? Up till then, he had been looking at the lion's great feet and huge claws on them. Now, in his despair, he looked up at his face. What he saw surprised him as much as anything else in his whole life. For the tawny face was bent down near his own, and wonder of wonders, great shining tears stood in the lion's eyes. They were such big, bright tears compared with Diggory's own, that for a moment he felt as if the lion must really be sorrier about his mother than he was himself. Brothers and sisters, for the disciples and for the early believers and for us, storms will come. The Bible makes that very clear. Tests and trials will surround and engulf us. But here's what this pop quiz should teach us, that Jesus is with us and Jesus cares for us. As I said, this wasn't the first storm for Peter and it wasn't the last. Much more would come. But Peter learned his lesson here by God's grace, and he wants us to learn it too. After Jesus' storm, after he died for Peter and for me and for you on the cross, more storms would come. If you look to Acts chapter 12, there we'll read about one such storm. In Acts chapter 12, we read in verse 2 that in the early church there was great persecution from Herod the king. Actually, verse 1 says he laid violent hands on some who belong to the church. Specifically in verse 2, it says that Herod the king killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. Then it says in verse 3, And when Herod saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. So I think you can imagine what the plan was for Peter. He was going to be put to death. If you continue looking on, In Acts chapter 12, you'll see that once again, Peter was facing death. What did he do this time? Did he scream and cry out? Or did he doubt in God and his care? No, instead we see a little little further on in Acts chapter 12, that God sent an angel to release Peter because God wasn't done with him yet. 
And we see in verse 6 how the angel found Peter. He found Peter fast asleep. Fast asleep. And of course, Peter would later be arrested again. And this time, God wouldn't free him. God would call the Apostle Peter home to be with him. Jesus told Peter this already in John 21. And so, later it came true. Peter was imprisoned, and then he was killed. And Sinclair Ferguson reflects on that passage, and he thinks it, or that, that event. And he thinks it's safe to say that that night before Peter was killed, Sinclair Ferguson thinks Peter slept soundly that night too. What do you think? According to tradition, the one thing that Peter was anxious about was he didn't feel comfortable dying for Jesus the same way Jesus died for him. He asked to be crucified upside down instead. And before he died, Peter wrote his own letter to those who were being persecuted for their faith, as he was. And in 1 Peter 1, he writes that these people, uh, these persecuted believers, could be confident in their living hope, their imperishable inheritance, won for them by Jesus Christ himself. And that even in their suffering, they could rejoice that even though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And finally, Peter ends off that same letter with encouragement for these weary, storm-beaten believers, saying, Cast all your anxieties on God because he cares for you. And after you have suffered for a little while, the God of grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. So Peter learned that, yes, Jesus cared for him. And he cares for you too. Yes, he leads us through suffering. And he even calls us to suffer now. But still, he is with us. He is the Lord of the storm. And he'll lead us safe to the other side, in this life or in the one to come. And this is the hope held on to the, the, part of the martyrs in Peter's day, but also by, to the martyrs in John Calvin's day. This past week, I read a letter from Guido de Bray. Uh, Guido de Bray, as you might know, he's the one who wrote our Belgic Confession of Faith. For his belief in the gospel, Guido de Bray too was imprisoned, and he knew for sure he was about to die. And we have a letter from him. And you can read it yourself online. We have his last letter to his wife before he was put to death. In that letter, Guido de Bray encourages his wife because he is concerned for her, but not at all for himself. He explains in his letter that even in this storm, he has a deep peace that surpasses understanding. Even there, about to die in prison, he knew that Christ was with him. He knew that Christ loved and cared for him. And in fact, he says in the letter that he counted it a great honor that God counted him worthy to show his love and care for Christ by dying for him as he died for us. In fact, Guido de Bres says that in prison, in this final trial, this final test, that's when he was learning so much more than he ever had about just who God was. And just how much God was present. And just how much God cared. That's where we should end up at the end of this story. Realizing that we still have a lot to learn 
about who Jesus is, what he has done, and how much he cares. That's where the disciples end up at the end of our passage as well. And that's actually where the Gospel of Mark ends up too, in a sense, as we'll see in a number of weeks. You can imagine again this story. Imagine the wind and the waves stopping. A great peace and quiet and calm falling upon all the disciples. But in their hearts, they are filled with, Mark says, a great fear, a great awe, a great reverence and wonder at just who Jesus Christ is. And so they ask a wonderful question. You can imagine them sitting on the still water in the boat, whispering to one another the question at the end of our text. Who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? The pop quiz worked. May it have the same effect on us. People who think we get Jesus. People who think uh, we have faith and we hear the same message all the time and we, we pretty much got it down pat. Let us be challenged. And let us realize already now, maybe in a storm, maybe after a storm, maybe before a storm, let us realize how much we have to learn about this Savior who cares for us enough to die for us. He, uh, let us come to church, let us come to Scripture each day again, hungry and eager to learn more about this one, the Messiah, the Son of God, and just what that means and who he is and what he's like. The one who we read in Mark heals our diseases. The one who we read in Mark forgives your sins. The one who we read in Mark is more powerful and frightful than a storm. The one who teaches us. The one who remains beside us. The one who died that you might reach the other side safe. The one who you better believe truly does care. Let's study up because we never know when there will be a pop quiz. Amen. Let's sing in response in Christ alone.
Let's pray together. Wonderful God, awesome Father, King of all creation, you are sovereign. You are almighty. And all of creation, all of our lives, bend beneath your perfect will. We know and we confess that you're the one who still upholds heaven and earth and all creatures, and even us. We confess that we are in your hand. We're so happy to confess and believe that in your hand, we're safe. This is such wonderful news. We look at this hurting, broken, sin-filled world, and there's no one else who we'd rather have as king. There's no one else we would rather have be in control of every moment of every day. We praise you because you are the God who knows, and you're the God who shows, especially in Christ, uh, that you are a caring and merciful and compassionate God. As weak and sinful people, we humbly ask that you will love us, and that you will cleanse us, and that you'll teach us, and that you'll care for us. We humbly ask that you would rule all things in such a way that you would avert all evil, or if you allow it, that it would be for the best, that somehow you would turn all evil to our benefit. Lord, we pray this, and we pray it with confidence, because we know that this is exactly what you have promised to do. Lord, help us to trust in it. Help us to trust in you and your word. Help us to know these truths and help us to also feel and experience them in our regular day-to-day lives, even uh, when you throw a storm our way. Lord, help us to somehow be able to rejoice even in suffering, rejoice even in great trials. Lord, this is a difficult command, one we could never live up to on our own. Lord, we know that apart from Jesus, we can do nothing. And so we ask, as you give the command, you would equip us to begin to keep these commands. And when we fall short, we ask that you would wash our sins clean, that you would move them as far away from us as the east and west extend. Lord, we know that these things too, you will do because these things you promise us only in your Son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name alone that we worship, in his name alone that we pray. Amen. At this point in the service, we have, as we do every week, an uh, an opportunity to give our gifts back to the Lord who's entrusted them to us in the first place. The offering for this week will be for Manoah Manor again, and then after that we'll stand to sing hymn 77 together.
Brothers and sisters, lift up your hearts to the Lord and go home in peace. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Amen. Amen.